Good morning. Take your Bible this morning and turn to John chapter 12. And as you turn there, I want to say a couple things. Uh, this week uh, at our church, uh, a youth group has been uh, staying here at our church from out of state. Uh, they are a church from, a youth group from South Carolina, Florence, South Carolina, Calvary Baptist Church. And uh, they've been staying here and using our facilities to, uh, to kind of lodge at night and to uh, you know, fix meals and do those sorts of things, and then they go out during the day, and they've been on mission uh, throughout Jacksonville, doing a lot of mission work this week, and so they're headed back today, and I believe, you, yeah, you guys are in attendance, so Calvary Baptist Church Youth Group, if you're in here, would you just stand so we can see you this morning? Stand up. Let's make them feel welcome this morning. All right, you can have a seat. You can have a seat. Some of you are like, why did he just do that? That was embarrassing. All right, but we're glad y'all are here, and uh, glad y'all have had a great week, and uh Look forward to seeing you know how God uh, is going to use this week in the future in your group's lives. Um, so anyway, we're going to be in John chapter twelve. It's been a long weekend. Has it been a busy weekend for anybody else, or a few of you? So it's just been a busy, busy week. Uh, so Thursday morning, I preached a funeral here at the ch- uh, church, and we celebrated the life of Miss Laura Weeks, and just a wonderful time of celebration of such a godly lady who is in heaven. And uh, then I had to get on the road and head up to North Carolina to a board meeting at Snowbird. And uh, finished that up on Friday and then headed back down to Jacksonville to be at some baseball games yesterday morning. Uh, a, uh, we had two baseball games at two different times in two locations, so made that work. And uh, in the middle of all that, my wife went with the women's ministry up to Snowbird, so I had to get all three kids up this morning, get everybody dressed, fed, uh, here to church. So I just need you to pray for me in two ways today, all right? Pray my wife makes it home safely. I need her. I love her. And if she's watching online, I love you. Please get home quickly and safely. Uh, second, pray, just pray this sermon makes sense this morning, all right? Uh, pray with me about that as well. Uh, we're kind of in between series uh, today. Uh, so we finished up our James series. And of course, we've had some um, good Sundays over the last few Sundays uh, with Brody coming to speak. And then, of course, last week was Easter. We'll have a couple of standalone sermons over the next couple weeks. And then three weeks from today, we have Mother's Day. And then we'll get into a three-week vision series, and I'm really looking forward to taking our church through that and talking about the future, uh, talking about our discipleship process and all kinds of different things. So I look forward to that, be praying about that. But this morning, as I've prayed this week and thought about where we wanted to go, this is where I've landed after thinking about what we spent all last Sunday celebrating. All right, so we spent last Sunday celebrating the good news that Jesus is alive. By the way, that's still good news to celebrate today. All right, he's just as alive today as he was last week. Uh, We celebrate Easter every day. So in light of what we celebrated last week, just in an an intense way, a special way, coming together, uh, celebrating the risen king who's conquered sin, who's conquered the grave, who's good, benevolent, gracious, merciful. He's our living savior who's demonstrated his love for us uh, in the gospel, a love that's unconditional, a love that's faithful, a love that's extravagant. I thought it would be a good use of our time this morning to think about how we're to live our lives in response to that. How do we, we're to live our lives in light of what we celebrate on Easter. So we're going to use John chapter 12 to do just that. Now we're going to see some wrong responses in this text, some ways not to respond. And then we're going to look at two, uh, two or actually three right responses uh, to the, the goodness and the mercy and the majesty and the grace and the worthiness of Jesus. All right, we're going to see responses that are passionate, extravagant, and very appropriate when it comes to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And I think it'll help us understand how we're to respond to him in our own life. So we need a little context moving into John chapter 
12 as we before we stand and read in just a few moments and then, uh, many of you know what happened in John chapter 11 uh, that's where Jesus performs at the end of what's called the book of signs in the gospel of John uh, his last final public miracle you know of course the resurrection of himself of Jesus is really the final final miracle uh, but the last uh, miracle in his public ministry which is the raising of Lazarus from the dead uh, many of you remember the story, Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, who are friends of Jesus. Their brother has died. Uh, they are heartbroken. They're sad. They're grieving. They call for Jesus to, to come. He doesn't come. He, it's too late. Uh, and so they're heartbroken. They're confused. Of course, when Jesus shows up, we learn that he delayed for a reason. By the way, that's a whole message in and of itself, that God's working even in your delays and your detours. He is working even when maybe it feels like he's not working. He is there, and he has a purpose even in your pain. But he shows up, and he shows us that the delay was so that a miracle could happen, so that he could, God could get the glory, and also to develop the faith in Mary and Martha. Of course, Lazarus has raised it from the dead. They're excited. They're elated. They're happy. I do wonder at times what Lazarus thought about all that, right? Just think about that for a moment, right? So Lazarus, like, was he settling into his house in heaven, right? He, he died, right? He was a follower of God. So was he in, like, heaven there, you know, as they're down there attending his funeral? And, like, an angel knocks on his door. Hey, listen, I, I got some, I'm here just to deliver the news. I got some good news and I got some bad news. Good news, you'll be back here soon. Bad news is you got to go back down there. It's like, what, what, really? I just got here, Right? And I stay longer. I have to leave the perfection of heaven to go back into the brokenness of the world. It's like, yeah, but God has a plan. God had work for him to do. And so Jesus is standing there outside the tomb. And Lazarus' dead body has been laying in the grave for four days. And he speaks. And, of course, Lazarus comes out of the grave. He's alive. And it's a miracle that was very public, very powerful, undeniable, witnessed by a lot of people. And people who were there who witnessed it had to respond to it question is, is how would they respond to it? We see five different kinds of responses in the passage that we're going to read this morning to the power and the goodness uh, of Jesus. All right, so we're going to look at, of course, how not to respond and how to respond. So stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse one. <clears throat> it says this, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, uh, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was the ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared. I love the way John says this about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what he put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I pray that you would guide us through these responses in your word this morning, Lord. Lord, I pray as we do think about your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Lord, that you would help us to respond in a way that honors you. Lord, help us to look at the responses here that are inappropriate to that of a risen king. And Lord, help us to also look at these responses that are very appropriate when it comes to how to respond to our Savior and to our King and to our Lord. And by your grace, may we follow their example for the glory of your
deeper name. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want to look at is the response of the religious leaders to uh, the resurrection of Lazarus. All right? So, uh, which it really was more of a resuscitation because we remember that Lazarus had to die again. Uh, But we will kind of call that a a resurrection. So, in response to this resurrection, um, Lazarus... um, raising from the dead, the first response that we see is from the religious crowd. And it's this. Number one, we see a rebellious rejection. We see a rebellious rejection. So uh, these religious guys, they reject uh, Jesus. All right. So I want to to go back into chapter 11. We'll actually read that in just a moment. But I want to point this out that Jesus is just uh, given like the mic drop I am statement that you find in the gospel. He says, I am, what, the resurrection and the life. And he doesn't just say that. He actually backs that up by attending a funeral and raising a dead man up from the grave. All right, so as this happened, and this did happen, and the religious leaders were there, the community was there in representation, witnessing this happen. Uh, out of everybody who was there in that culture, and in that community who witnessed there, witnessed this, out of all of them, who should have understood most and whose eyes should have been widened the most, and who should have been convinced the most that this truly was the Messiah. It should have been the religious crowd, right? These guys right here, there's nobody who would have been more educated. There's no one who had memorized more of the messianic prophecies than these guys. They looked the part. They sounded really spiritual. They were experts in the law of God. And yet, as we move through the Gospels, and John really tracks this over and over again, who is the most consistent and dogmatic about rejecting Jesus as Messiah? It's the religious crowd. And over and over again, and here's another example, instead of seeing the miracle that Jesus performs right here and bowing to him as king and surrendering to him, instead they reject him. Instead of saying, surely this is the Messiah and surrendering to him, look at what they did. This is, this is their move. Look at verse 47. It says, so the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council and said, uh, what are we to do? For this man performs signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So think about it. In response to the power of Jesus clearly on display, instead of meeting up and huddling up in like, in like full of guys who like have hearts full of awe and worship and just like, man, this is incredible. Surely we have to follow this Savior, this Lord. He is the Messiah. Instead of that, you got a bunch of guys filled with pride. You got a bunch of guys filled with insecurity. You got a bunch of guys filled with a bunch of fear that's flowing from hearts that are just full of pride and rebellion. All right. That what they do is they pull this move. They're huddling up and they're like, hey, listen, okay. Everybody aware just what happened, right? This is an issue. All right, this is a problem. All right, like, can anybody else do what he just did? Right, Pharisee Phil, can you raise someone from the dead? Legalistic Larry, can you do anything like that? Man, he's got the card stacked against us. None of us can compete with it. We're up here just teaching, man. He's going to like dead guys' funerals and raising them from the dead. No, we're going to be old news. This is, this is threatening our influence. Right? We're going to be yesterday's news. We're going to be flip phones in a smartphone world if we're not careful right here. We've got to do something about this. If we're not careful, hey, listen, worse than all of this, the Romans are going to come in as these crowds grow and this gets out of control. And they're going to come in and they're going to take away our status. I hope you guys are okay with flipping burgers down at Burger King because you ain't going to have a job no more. You're going to have any connections, no more power. We've got to stop it. Instead of surrendering to him, they're committed 
to stopping him. And this is the point in the gospel story in verse 57 where these religious groups have had enough and decide to go on a manhunt after Jesus because they have plans to kill Jesus, as it says in verse 53. Now, this is a position, this is a response that probably nobody here feels like they are in the camp of. All right, nobody's just like, hey, I'm not a Christian. Maybe you're here today. I'm not a Christian, but I'm not trying to end the entire Christian faith. All right, I'm not a Christian, but I'm not trying to take down the entire movement of Christianity. Maybe not, but you do need to know that the Bible really has two categories. Those who surrender and bow and follow Jesus as Lord and Savior and those who find themselves in the same arena, the category of response that these Pharisees and these chief priests who are on a manhunt to kill Jesus as a rebellious rejecter. That if you are not following Christ, the Bible would still label you as a rebellious rejecter of Jesus Christ. And so once more you're here. Once more this morning you're hearing the gospel. Once more we want to plea with you to come to Jesus, to admit your sin, to experience his forgiveness by repenting and believing the gospel of Jesus Christ and experiencing forgiveness of your sins. Don't be like the religious leaders right here. Some of you are here this morning and maybe you're following their response. Maybe you're following the path that they walked. And what you are is what they were, blind, and you can't see that Jesus is not coming to take something from you. He has done something for you. Jesus hasn't come to be a cosmic killjoy and to take away the fun from your life. As so many in this world right now perceive him to be. He's come to give you life. Not to just give you life, to give you life abundantly. He came so that you can experience in a world of brokenness where the wells of this world will promise you they can satisfy your soul, but always fail to do so. He provides real peace. He provides real joy. He provides real hope. He provides real fulfillment. He provides real satisfaction. But in pride, what the religious crowd does is continues to chase after what they want to chase after and try to do it their own way and find their own way. And it's sad and it's tragic that at any point these religious leaders could have laid down their pride, they could have bowed their knee to Him as Lord and Savior, and and He would have saved them. He would have covered them with His grace. But they stood in a position of rebellious resistance. And history shows us that's a bad place to stand in. It does not end well for you. Now, some of you are Christians and you're like, well, amen to that. I was just sitting here taking that point off. And yeah, yeah, I know some people who need to listen to that. That's for all of us. There's an application for you as well. Because even as a Christ follower, how often do we amen the point about Jesus being our Savior? Yes, praise the Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for saving me from hell. And yet live at times with these levels of rebellious resistance to Him as Lord of your life. To where we celebrate Him as Savior over our entire life, but then try to pick and choose or we're going to let Him be Lord of our life. Like, Jesus, I appreciate what you did for me on the cross. Amen. Saved me from hell. Didn't want to go there. But I, I, I invite you into the house as, uh, of my life as Savior, but I got some rooms I'm going to need you to stay out of as Lord. I'm going to need you to, hey, I'm all about you saving me, giving me your grace and forgiving me, forgiving me of my sins, but I'm going to need you to stay out of that room of what I do in my private time. I'm going to need you to stay out of that room as Lord about how I use my smartphone or stay out of the room of how I choose to express my sexuality. Stay out of the room of how I relate to my spouse. Like, Jesus, don't be coming up in that room as Lord calling me to forgive and to love and to cherish her like, like, you, like your son or like Jesus loves and serves the church. And we can play this 
game, can't we, of receiving Jesus as Savior of our life, but then rejecting Him as the Lord of our life. And the Bible says and shows us over and over and over again clearly that our response to the one who has died on the cross, who came and and suffered in our place, and who has conquered the grave and holds the keys to death itself, the only appropriate response is to say, here's the keys to my entire house. Here's my life. I bowed my knee to you, not just as my Savior, but as my Lord. So first response is is a wrong response. It's a rebellious resistance. But number two, we see a joyful service. A joyful service. Uh, This is Martha's response to Jesus. So not long after Lazarus is raised up from the dead, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. He and uh, his disciples, so uh, they get to Bethany. It's about two miles outside of, uh, that was the air conditioner, if you were wondering what that was. This whole side of the room just jumped. Sorry about that. We need a countdown so you know that's coming, all right? Uh, where was I, all right? Sounded like a herd of horses was running on the roof there for a second. So he's on his way, uh, Jesus is on his way with the disciples, and they're going to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration, right? A festival. And Um, Before they get there, they stop at Bethany, two miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, and Martha's there. Remember, this is right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead, and and Martha wants to throw them a dinner party. And so she invites them, big group, party of 13, right? But she, she lays out the spread. She is excited about celebrating the one who has raised her, her brother up from the dead. So, I mean, she's jumping into the kitchen. She's serving some of y'all. Or Martha's, man, she, she knows what she's doing. She's navigating the kitchen. She's in, like, dinner party planning mission mode. All right, she's chopping food. All right, she's pots and plants, or, or, or pots and, uh, not plants, but pots and pans are clanging together and making a bunch of noise. And uh, the, house is filling, the house is filled with the smells of food and finest dinnerware is being laid out, right? Y'all, y'all, some of y'all are some Marthas. You know some Marthas. Like, when they're in the kitchen, stay out of their way. They're on a mission, right? That's Martha right here. She's, she's devoted and excited and passionate about celebrating and honoring Jesus with this dinner party. Now, if you're a Bible student at all, you're probably having some deja vu right here, right? Because this isn't the first dinner party that she's hosted. There was actually an earlier dinner party that she hosted for Jesus and the disciples earlier on in his ministry. And it was very similar in many ways, right? When you look at Luke chapter 10, Martha there, she's in the kitchen. Again, pots and pans are clanging around. You know, she's serving, she's organizing, she's uh, fixing dinner. But the difference is in that earlier dinner party, what Jesus says about Martha is she looks at him and says, you are distracted and you're anxious and you are troubled about many things. In other words, she was stressed. She was rushing. You get this sense, the atmosphere, this anxious atmosphere. She's rushing around. She's worried. I don't know. Maybe she was like, y'all didn't tell me you were going to bring all these people. I don't know if I got enough food. I'm, I, I think I forgot an ingredient. What if Jesus doesn't like this cake that I'm cooking? What if this doesn't all work out right, right? Maybe she just got a little mad, like a little inner flesh, like some do sometimes. Like, and why am I the only one in the kitchen working right now? Can anybody come in here and help me? No, you've never been there before. Some of you young moms, you know, you know that, that moment you're trying to, you're trying, it's like a long day, you've fed a kid, you're trying to get the kitchen clean, you're, trying, you're, you're kind of packing lunches, trying to get ready for the next day, straightening book bags, you know, getting the kids bathed and brushing their teeth and trying to get, get all that chaos organized, right? And in that moment, you're like, if my husband's on the couch watching YouTube videos, somebody's dying tonight, all right? I may or may not have heard that exact quote at some point in my life. But in that earlier dinner party, Martha is there. She's anxious. She's frustrated. 
Remember, she actually does. She literally yells into the living room. It's like, hey, hey, Mary, story time with Jesus. That can wait till later. Like, I need some help in here. And Jesus basically says, Martha, you are an anxious wreck. She says, no, you're wrong. You see, Mary, and he uses this phrase, he says, has chosen the good portion. She's enjoying the presence of her Lord while you're anxious and you're troubled about all those different things. He rebukes Martha in the way she serves at the first dinner party, but here we are at a second dinner party and it's a different atmosphere. You sense that it, there's something different. The mood is celebratory. You don't sense any anxiousness. You don't sense any of those things that you sense in that first scene at that first dinner party. What has changed? She's changed. Martha has changed. Where she was once serving out of a place of duty, and anxiety, anxiety, she's now serving out of a place of gratitude and joy. In other words, there was a time when, when she, it, it, it seems like she was making the Christian faith about how she could serve Jesus and getting everything right. But now she realizes that the Christian faith is about how Jesus has first served her. You really, I mean, when you lay Luke 10 next to this text right here, you really do sense that in this second dinner party, there's a, a freedom from this burden of, am I doing everything right? Am I wondering if this is acceptable? Am I doing enough? It's free from that kind of that larger religious posture that people can have of, am I performing right? Something has changed in Martha's life. And what has changed is through this miracle of God coming in power and in love and raising up her brother from the grave. Her life has collided with the Son of Man who comes and says this, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but came to serve. Jesus came in the world to serve us. To serve us in His life, to serve us in His death, to die on the cross in our place, the sinless one in the place of sinners, putting our needs Above his own. He served us first. And I'm telling you, listen, believer, disciple of Christ, Christian this morning, you need to make sure your heart remains in the posture of Martha at the second dinner party. Because some of you are here this morning, and you've never been busier in ministry. Your hands are busy in ministry. Your hands are busy in service unto the Lord. Your hands are busy doing a lot of the right things, and yet your spirit and your heart is taxed. And you feel exhausted. Why? Maybe because you've slipped back into a place where you once did not experience a burden when it came to the work of the Lord. When you met Jesus and you tasted his grace and you realized how he first served you. And in your flesh, you've served back into this place where you're feeling jaded. You're feeling weary and anxious. It's turned into this religious duty. It's not intended to be. And you're doing it for the wrong reasons. That's why you feel exhausted. And the remedy for that is to one, repent of serving for the wrong reasons, whatever those are. But to also remember the gospel. To remember once again in, the fresh, in a fresh way the gospel. And as you think about the gospel and how Jesus first served you, what you do is you start serving once again with an infectious joy and with a full heart and with a passion. Because when we experience the gospel, you serve joyfully because he served you first. The gospel keeps us serving with the right kind of hearts, and it's what gets us into service in the first place. See, there's a lot of places here at our church we need, we need gaps filled in. We need people serving in the kids' ministry. We need people serving in different places. We need more of just the organic service of people in small groups, 
many of our small groups do an incredible job that it's, it's more often than not that I'll show up at a hospital room and somebody from their small group has already shown up and seen how they could serve them before I ever got there. So we're getting a lot, a lot of that right. Glory to God. But there's always more service that needs to be done. There's still so many people still sitting on the bench who need to get into the game and begin to serve. Aylin, we're trying to do a good job of building on-ramps. We're trying to do, I, I, you know, I take ownership of that. We're committed to doing a good job of even in that vision series that we're going to do in a few weeks of laying out places that you can serve in our church. But I'll tell you what, even with building the best on-ramps and laying out the opportunities as clearly as we can and, and sharing some stories about how God's blessing people in areas of service, listen, the, the most powerful way of lighting a fire under someone to get them to jump into service in the lives of others and in the life of their church is when people won't get over the gospel. When your life collides with the gospel and you never get over it to where you go, I have seen and I can't get over how Jesus has served me and I want to serve people to the glory of him. I want to serve the Jesus who is, who is the good, generous, servant-hearted king who saved me from my sins. And it's made me a recipient of something I didn't deserve or earn. So joyful service is the second one. Third one, extravagant worship. This is where we see Mary respond. Extravagant worship. Look at verse 3. So we're back at the dinner. It says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume. How does Mary respond to Jesus? So imagine you're there at this party and, and there in the middle of it, Mary gets up and she approaches Jesus with this perfume. Scholars are pretty confident, and this is something that I was reminded of this week, that it's very likely that she didn't just anoint his feet, that she probably started from head to toe and covered him with this um, ointment and ended by using her, her hair to wipe the excess perfume off of his feet with her, with her hair. Now, it uses the word expensive, all right? But that can be a little misleading, all right? This isn't talking about, like, just going with the uh, department store perfume over the dollar store perfume. I don't even know if that exists. I don't know if there's dollar store perfume, but you get the point. He uses, you see that word nard there. That's a, that's a funny word, isn't it? Like, I know what a nerd is. What's a nard? What's nard? This is, like, this is the most, in those days, this is the most expensive perfume your mind could imagine. Like it comes from the, the mountains of northern India. It was rare. It was this kind of exotic type of thing that not a lot of people had. Judas makes a remark in the text uh, when he speaks up that helps us understand just how costly it was. What does he say? It was worth uh, 300 denarii or denarius. Is, it may use that word in some of your translations. But a, a denarii, 300 denarii, one denarii, was a daily wage. And so when Judas says this bottle of perfume that Mary has was worth 300 denarii, he's saying this is worth the annual salary of a first century day laborer. All right, to calculate it in a way that hits us today, this would be equal to you buying a fragrance or there being a fragrance in existence, I'm not sure if there is, that costs $2,000 an ounce. She's got a pound of it. And she's so overwhelmed by all that Jesus has done for her and how worthy he is of her worship, worship, she pours it all on Jesus. She's pouring the very best that she has at the very feet of Christ. 
And there's something else to think about right here because if you read Mark's account of this same uh, scene, the same situation, uh, you read there, he gives you another detail that she gets it out of an alabaster box, which was a very special, expensive box that was almost always something that gave a clue that to, to an inheritance. That there, This is something that costs a lot of money. This is something that would have been passed down from generation to generation. And so what you have here is this alabaster box filled with this expensive perfume that's in the house of this working class family that was her inheritance. There doesn't appear to be a father or a mother in the picture right here. There's no mention of a husband in Mary's life. All she had was an older brother to care for her in a society where you were vulnerable. And it was a very difficult world to live in as a, as a woman without a man in your life, whether that be a brother or a father or a husband. No wonder she was so heartbroken when her only brother died. But then there's another interesting thing to think about that this was almost certainly, this, this spike nard in this story, this was almost certainly something that would have been her, her dowry for her future husband's family. See, in the first century uh, culture and their society in that area of the world, it was a requirement if you were going to get married that the bride's family give a very expensive gift that had to be received by the groom's family in order for you to get married. And so the father left her this expensive ointment as, as her inheritance and as her dowry. Think about what that means. In that type of world where marriage was very, very important, this means her capacity to get married was in that box and in that bottle. This is how valuable and special it was, this generous dowry. And what does she do with it? She takes this gift, she takes her inheritance, the most valuable thing to her, and she breaks it open at the feet of Jesus. It's a powerful moment. She joyfully brings her very best to the very feet of her Savior, who she knows is worthy of even so much more than that. That's the kind of extravagant, sacrificial worship that we see in God's Word. That's appropriate for this kind of king. Listen, but the only way that you have that kind of extravagant sacrificial worship and generosity, the only way that that will make sense in your life to give this to this king is when you yourself have experienced his generosity in your life. When you have experienced the power of his grace and his love and his mercy in your life. Think about what Mary's experienced. Think about how powerfully she's experienced the grace and the love of God. She's at dinner with her brother who was just dead and now he's alive and he's sitting there eating with him. She's overwhelmed with gratitude at this Jesus and his love and his generosity and the power he's demonstrated in her family's life. And she doesn't have, if anybody could express words, it's Mary. She wasn't as much as the server naturally as the person sitting there going through her Bible, you know, marking things up with all of her different colored highlighters. She was posting stuff on it. She was that person. She was thoughtful. She loved to read. She loved to study. Some of you are married. If there's anybody who would be able to express it's Mary, words were not enough. She loved him so much. All she could do was break what was most valuable to her and pour it over her king. So think about your life. You say, how do we reach levels where we are worshiping Jesus with extravagance, with passion. Think about your life. 
Think about all that God has done in your life. Think about the promises that He promises to do in your life. Think about what He has given you. Think about what He's done. Think about how in joy He laid down His life at Calvary for you. How He's given you eternal life. How He's He's a God who gives. He's a God who's generous. For God so loved the world, what? That He gave. Not just His Son to die for you on the cross and to raise from the dead, but He's given you His Holy Spirit. You know why? He wanted to give you His presence to walk with you and to work in you. To never forsake you as you walk through this dark and broken world. Think about all that he's done for us. Think about all that he will do for us. Think about heaven. Think about you've stood by the grave like Mary and Martha did of a loved one. Many of you have stood there and you've shed tears. Over the loss of someone who died. Someone who died in Christ. You've stood by their graves. And listen, what has God promised you because of the resurrection? That one day, because Jesus conquered death, that you will see them again in perfect health. That you will see them in a place where we will never die again. And in resurrected bodies, we will sit with them at a banquet table. And we will look to the Lord who conquered death for us. And we will rejoice forever at His extravagant love for us. And the only logical and proper response to that kind of grace and that kind of love and those kind of promises and that kind of generosity that again, God gives us that we're recipients of, not earning, not deserving of, is we we return to him over and over and say, take it all. God, all that I have is yours. All my time, all my talent, all my treasure, it's yours. I lay it all at your feet. Use it for your glory. Some people will look at a life of extravagant worship. Like some people, as we'll get to in just a second, look at Mary in that room. And will say, what a waste. What a waste of a life. What a waste of this valuable perfume, of this ointment. And yet think about as she covered Jesus from head to toe in an act of extravagant worship. Think about something this morning that that perfume most certainly as expensive as it was, as high quality as it was, in the high volume at which she poured it on Jesus with, that smell didn't go away from that point to the cross. It lingered from that moment to the cross and that was a gift Mary gave to him in an act of of worship, symbolic of her pouring out to him in extravagant worship, all of herself. Take my dreams, take my plans, take my will. You're worthy of all of it. You're worthy of all of my life. Could there be a greater legacy than that right there? Some of you may be getting older and you begin to wonder, have I left a good legacy for my family? You're a follower of Christ and you wonder, have, have I left a, a name and an honorable respectability for my family? Listen, there is no greater legacy that you could ever leave than this one right here. That you poured out your life in extravagant worship, in love, in devotion for Jesus. That is not a life that is wasted. Three times Mary shows up in the New Testament and all three times you find her at the feet of Jesus. When Jesus was teaching, she fell at his feet to learn. When her life was falling apart, she fell at his feet to be healed. And on this day, in the presence of the one who is the resurrection and the life, she falls at his feet simply to say thank you. And we can learn from her example. Very quickly, let's look at two more. First, we look at a 
a wrong response in the phony faith of Judas. And as Judas is presented right here, it provides a contrast between Mary, the true worshiper, and a phony worshiper. We get this, right? In this powerful moment, think about that room. Think about it. It's filled with the smell of this perfume. It's a wonderful moment of worship. God's being glorified, and, and everybody's watching, and then Judas has the butt in. Party pooper, right? And what does he say? Hey, time out. Is this really how we want to be allocating these resources? Is this the best use of this perfume? And what does he do? He shows his true colors. That'll come out in full very soon. And Judas shows that Judas is all about Judas. Judas is in this for personal gain. Verse 6 says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what he put in it. Judas didn't care about the poor. Judas didn't care about the kingdom of God. Judas cared about Judas. He was hanging in there, riding the coattails of Jesus, hoping that one day he'd get in his cabinet, thinking he was the Messiah who was going to come and rule in political power. He was in it for himself. He was in it for what he could get from it to serve his own purposes and his own will. And where you see Mary, who found Jesus worthy and majestic and beautiful, you find Judas simply and sadly saying, I see Jesus as just as being useful to me. And we live in a world where you fall into one of those two camps. Religion says that I will serve God and I will give my life to religion and the so-called things of God because I want something back. But the gospel says Jesus has given me all of himself and I will serve him not because I'm trying to earn something from him but because he's given me his love first. He's lavished my life with grace. Now, some of you are like, man, that's neat. But again, I mean, I took another time out there. You know, I'm not sure you were talking to me. That was good. I can think of some people who need to hear that. I'm not sure I need to hear that. Yes, you do. And I need to hear it as well. Because, you know, we still have flesh. And I can still find myself along the way thinking, hey, Judas's are out there and Judas's are maybe over there or over there. And yet in my own flesh, I can still feel this thing creeping at times of me seeing God as someone who I go to to get something for me instead of continuously laying my life down at his disposal because of what he's done for me first. Fifth, and this is the final one this morning as we close, we see the response of faithful evangelism. This comes in verses 9 through 11. So we've seen the religious crowd's response. We've seen Martha's response. We've seen Mary's response. We've seen um, Judas's response in fifth. This morning we see Lazarus' response, faithful evangelism. Verse 9, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And the Bible says that because of Lazarus' testimony, that many people came to faith in Jesus Christ. Lazarus never wrote a book, right? That should be a little something you should pay attention to, right? The one person who we know actually died and came back to life, right? Didn't chase a book deal. Think about that next time you're in the bookstore and you see somebody write a book about going to heaven and coming back, all right? Little note, I'll move on. He never wrote a book. He never planted a church. And yet he impacted Dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of lives for the sake of the gospel. You say how? Simply because he wouldn't shut up about the gospel. 
He wouldn't shut up about what he had experienced in his encounter with Jesus. And it says the religious leaders, they got, they got a plot to kill him now. That had to be interesting to see that conversation go down, right? They're going to kill the guy who just got you know, raised from the dead, right? Like, how did that conversation look? Hey, hey listen, Judas, you're going to have to quiet that thing. Hey, a lot of people stop talking about Jesus raising you from the dead because people are, see, people are leaving Judaism and this is affecting our life and our livelihood and our power and our influence. So could you just maybe stop trying to do it? Because a lot of people are leaving Judaism and becoming Christians. That's a problem. And Lazarus was like, well, what are you going to do if I don't stop doing that? We're going to kill you. Oh, you see, because see, I have this deal where like when I die, like Jesus comes and he like raises me from the dead. So you want to kill me now? You want to get this over with now? We can do it later. We can set up an appointment. I'm not really scared of that. I'm not really worried about that. Because see, I know. I know the one who has the power to make people live again. And I was dead and now I'm alive. And that was his story. No wonder he one of the most bold witnesses, examples of bold witnesses that we see in all of Scripture because he experienced the power of Jesus and refused to stop telling people about it. And it was a very simple, it was a very simple story. I don't think he went to a bunch of evangelism training classes and read a bunch of books and not saying any of those are bad. It was just simply him walking around going, hey, I was dead and now I'm alive and he's the one who did it. Go see him. And spiritually, this is our story. People can sit, you can sit around and debate evolution and interpretation. There's nothing wrong with some of that. As you're trying to evangelize and you're trying to witness. But you know there's a story that, and there's something that people can't debate. And that's your story that you were dead and now you're alive. It's a powerful evangelism tool that you have at your disposal. I mean, I was dead and now I'm alive. Like I, some of you, some of you could stand up right now and with passion and tears flowing down your cheeks, you would say, I was lost, man. I was hopeless. I was depressed. I was at the end of my rope, but I found hope in a risen savior. And I've never been the same. And he's worthy of all of my praise. And I'm going to give the rest of my life to him. Even if it means I lose my life, man, I was an addict. And now I've been set free because of the grace of Jesus Christ, my risen Lord and savior. I was spiritually dead and now I'm alive. Man, I didn't go from a bad person to a better person. I went from a dead person to a person who is alive in Christ. Amen. You in Christ have a story to tell. And it's really not all that complicated. You were dead and now you're alive. Your family and your neighbors and your friends who are lost, they need to hear that story. And God wants to use you to share it with them. These are the proper responses to Jesus. Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And what's interesting is they're responding to Jesus. He's about to go to the cross. He's about to defeat death and raise from, his, raise from the dead himself and conquer death once and for all. But in this moment, we know now what they didn't know then. Here we are on this side of the resurrection, knowing what they didn't know in that moment. We know on this side of the resurrection what they didn't know in that moment, how much more he kept his promises, how much more he's a God of grace who's generous, who loves us. We know so much more this side of the cross in the empty tomb, how amazing his grace is. So how much more should we respond with joyful, servant-hearted, extravagant worship, sharing our story with a lost and dying world? Even than they did. You know, I read a story this past week about somebody 
As I read it, I went, wow, wow, this person really lived a life kind of in response and in all three of these ways to Christ. And it's a story about Francis Ridley Havergal. Now, if you grew up in the Baptist church and you remember looking at some of the people who wrote the hymns in the hymn book, that name is probably very familiar to you. She's a wonderful hymn writer. Her father was a pastor and also a very uh, gifted musician. And she wrote a lot of hymns. You can look them up that we still know and are familiar with to this day. She died fairly young. She died at 42, but she would tell you in her short life the best day of her life. February 4th, 1874, apart from her being saved, she would say this is the best day of her life. February 4th, 1874. Here's what happened. See, she wasn't only a gifted musician. She was a faithful evangelist. Like Lazarus, she wouldn't be quiet about the Jesus who changed her life. And in February of 1874, she was invited to come spend time. She was from England at this big manor type of house. And a family of 10 lived in this house. And and she she knew them through some friends. and, And she was very interested in going there, mostly because she knew all 10 of them were lost. And so she prayed about it, but decided to go. Because of that, and she prayed as she went that God would open up the door for her to be able to share the gospel and lead them to Christ. And so she goes, and and by God's grace, after she's been there for several days, eight out of the ten people get saved. Eight out of the ten people receive Christ through her testimony, talking with them, pointing them to Jesus. And then the Saturday came that she was to leave. She'd been there for several weeks, and And on that Saturday, she was to leave. There were still only eight out of the ten people who were saved. There were still two of the daughters who had not received Christ. They had rejected her attempts to lead them to Christ. And she went through kind of her disciplines that night, and she prayed, and she specifically prayed for those two girls. And she went to bed. And about nine or ten o'clock, there was a knock on the door, and it was the governess of the house. And she says, listen, Francis, I'm sorry to bother you. The two, those two girls, they're up and they want to talk to you. And so she got ready and she moved across the house to those girls' rooms. And she, she stayed in that room for two hours, talking with them, walking them through the scriptures, talking with them about their sins, leading them to Christ. And right before the clock struck midnight... Those two girls were on their face, confessing sin, pleading for God's mercy, and both of them received Christ as their Lord and Savior. And she said she went back to her room and couldn't go to sleep. And so she went to a part of the house where there was a piano, and she sat down at that piano, and she spent most of the night writing a hymn, just in worship to God for what he had done. And it was this, take my life and let it be consecrated Lord to thee take my moments and my days let them flow in endless praise take my will and make it thine it shall be no longer mine take my heart it is thy own it shall be thy royal throne take my love my Lord I pour at thy feet its treasure store take myself and I will be ever only all to thee ever only all to thee she would point back at that day and say, if I had to pick, that would be my favorite day. Because there's no greater joy in this life. There's no greater satisfaction in this life. There's no life as rewarding and as blessed 
and full of greater joy than a life poured out in extravagant worship to this king. Than a life poured out in joyful service to this king. Than a life lived passionately on mission, pointing people to Jesus Christ. Than the life that we've been called to as Christ followers. There's no greater joy. And for Francis, that was not a wasted day. And she did not live a wasted life. And she's one of many examples that I could give you today of someone who sought to follow Jesus but learned from the examples of Martha's and Mary's and Lazarus's and laid their life at the disposal of this resurrected king and said, take this world, take the pleasures of it. I'm all of yours. Let's pray. As you bow your head and close your eyes, let me ask you this morning, how is God prompting you to respond? Has he been prompting you to give more, to be more generous, to serve more, to witness more, to love more, to forgive more? We remember as believers, we make sure we're not being prompted to do those things to earn his love. This morning, we should be prompted to do those things because he showed us so much grace and showed us so much love. Where is he showing you you need to be more surrendered this morning? Have you been pushing him away? Is it showing someone forgiveness? Receive receive the direction of the Holy Spirit and don't resist that. And surrender to him. Maybe you're here this morning you need to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have an opportunity to do that right now. Jesus is alive. Grace is alive this morning. The gift of salvation is available. If you will admit your sin, if you will believe that Jesus lived the life you can't live and died the death you deserve to die and conquered the grave you can't conquer, and if you will throw the full weight of your faith on his finished work on the cross and believe that that's the only way you can go to heaven, that's the only way you can experience forgiveness, that's the only way you can be in right relationship with your creator, with God. If you will step towards Christ with that kind of heart, he will save you this morning. And I would love to talk to you if God is working in your heart this morning. Holy Spirit is dealing with you in that way. There's some of you here this morning, and I can't help but think about Mary in that house, in the public nature of her act of worship. She knew there were people in there who might mock her. As she performed this act of extravagant worship to her king. Very public. She didn't care what they thought. She cared more about what Jesus thought. There's some of you, and I'll apply it this way, maybe it's baptism. You've never, you're, you're a Christian and you've never taken that step of obedience. And maybe it's because you're worried and you're scared what people are going to think. Well, people have known me for being a Christian for all these years. If I get baptized now, what are they going to think about me? Care more about what Jesus thinks. That's a way for you to go public with your faith. It is a step of obedience that you take as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Get that right. Learn from Mary. Take a step in that direction of surrender this morning. How is the Holy Spirit showing you you need to respond? And I pray that God would look into our hearts this morning and see hearts that have collided with the gospel, can't get over his grace, and are responding in real ways in light of his finished work on the cross in that empty tomb. What we celebrated last week, we never get over. And may our lives show that we believe just that.